Jeffrey Crow remembers exactly what his best friend Neil Stonechild said to him the first time they met. He was 12 years old, hanging out at Westmount Park in Saskatoon's West End. So here I am at the uh, park by myself. I would go to the park just to get some fresh air to get out of the house. But just to just go and play and, you know, just hang out. All of a sudden, a group of boys approached him. And one of them started pushing him and mouthing off to him. They started scuffling and another boy from the group jumped in. When I get you on the ground, you're mince meat. And that was the first words Neil uttered to me. Jeffrey got away, but he kept his eyes open so that he wouldn't have another run-in. But soon, he started to hear that Neil was registering at his school. He was understandably nervous. So, that first day I went to school, I knew he was going to be there. And, uh, bang, I, I meet him. And then uh, he came, approached me, and then he said, uh, listen, uh, that thing that happened in the park, he goes, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be going to school here, you know, is it okay we just shake on it and just forget about it? And I thought that was pretty impressive because here I thought I was going to be having to uh, defend myself again. What impressed me was that he actually came up to me and apologized, shook my hand, and basically gave his word. And uh, right there, that was the union. And that was how we had started our friendship. Jeffrey and Neil became fast friends. We were so close that people used to tease us because we were like bound by the neck, so to speak. In some ways, they were opposites. Neil was assured, outgoing, athletic. Jeffrey was more self-conscious and artistic. He was very confident, self-confident. He had a, a belief in himself. He always encouraged me to keep doing my art because I had low self-esteem when I was a kid. So he'd always like pick me up. Be like, Jeff, don't, don't let people say things to you. You're so sensitive, he said. I can't help it, bro. Why? What's wrong? Tell me. No, I don't want to talk to you, man. I don't want to talk about it. And there would be all these kind of conversations. Why, Jeff? What's going on? And I'd say, no, it's okay, bro. Don't worry about me. They had a lot in common, too. They were both young indigenous boys navigating a city filled with bigotry. You uh, have to always have your guard up because there's so much racism and hatred and spitefulness towards First Nations people. So that was the sort of why we bonded together, because we were basically raised in the same environment, so we all looked after one another. Neil came from a big, loving family, headed by his mother, Stella Bignell. She tried to keep him out of trouble by enrolling him in army cadets and encouraging his love of competitive wrestling. But like a lot of teenagers, Neil and Jeff got into a bit of trouble. Drinking, breaking enters, nothing violent. That landed the two of them in Kilburn Hall, a local juvenile detention facility. While there, Jeffrey, who was drinking heavily at the time, was offered a chance to go to rehab. He was reluctant, but Neil encouraged him. He was really encouraging me, you know, to go to treatment and learn as much as I can. He goes, because you're going to take this opportunity, because it costs money to go to those places. And So I was like, okay. So I promised him that I would, so I did. 
and he promised me, he said, Jeff, he goes, you promised me that you're, you're going to finish treatment. Don't run away. And I said, okay, I promise I'll finish treatment. Just before Jeffrey went to the treatment center, Neil snuck out of the community home he was living in. And while he was on the run, he called his friend, who was still on the inside. He snuck a call in. Anyhow, ended up talking to him, and then he's telling me, you know, like what my plans were, and, you know, when I get out, and so, but I knew he was on the run, so I was telling him, Neil, I said, man, why are you on the run? So he told me, and then uh, we discussed it. And then uh, before he hung up the phone, he says, I love you, bro. And he's never, ever said he loved me, ever. Just that one time. But this is what he said after we were done talking. He was, bro, I got to uh, go home now. Because I love you. And that was the last words he uttered. And those words have healed me and kept me together. Days later, Jeffrey got another call. It would change his life forever. I was in the group session at the treatment center. Also, they asked for me. And they said, you got to take a phone call. So I took a phone call and then... uh, here was my dad on the telephone. He says, Jeff, I go, what's up, Dad? He goes, I got some terrible news to tell you. And I go, what's that? So I started getting worried. And he says, uh, they found Neil. They found Neil's body. But anyways, I hung up the phone. And then I ended up just going to my room. I was in shock. And I was just thinking that. I was in my room, sh- walking around, shaking, trembling, and all that stuff. And I was just going in a circle. And I said, you know, no, nah, this is just a prank, man. You know, no bros out there. You know, they got someone. This is a mix-up. This ain't them. No, no, no. I said, no, shake it off, Jeff. Tell her wrong with you. Oh, that's Neil. Like, he'll get out of it. Neil's, no, this is not Neil, man. So I called Stella. And I didn't want to. I was just debating, do I, what do I do? Do I call her or not? Like, it's just, like, what if I call her and it's not true? And then I'm like a fucking, I'm a, then I'm a jerk. But why would my dad say that? So I called, I called Collect, and then she answered, and then she confirmed, and then I hung up, I said, I'll be home, I'll be there. And then she said, okay, and then she you know, hung up the phone, and then I just went to complete shock for like a whole year. Neil Stonechild was 17 years old when he was found frozen to death in a field outside of Saskatoon. It was the end of November. He was only wearing one shoe. For decades, Indigenous people in Saskatoon whispered about the Starlight Tours. It was a pretty name for a very ugly practice. Police officers kidnapping indigenous people from the streets and dropping them off outside of town. Normally, this would happen in the warmer months, but then the police started giving these starlight tours in the dead of winter. A Saskatoon winter is a vicious thing, and at least three people died including a 17-year-old boy named Neil Stonechild. 30 years after his death, his family still doesn't have all the answers, and they certainly don't have justice.
I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. When Stella Stonechild Bignell moved to Saskatoon from Manitoba, she wanted a better life for her kids. His mother wanted to get out of the paw. She says to get away from, you know, some of the lifestyle that was there, including the alcohol abuse that had been impacting her family and her children. And she wanted to, to get away from that and to start a new life. That's Donald Worm. He's the senior partner at Semaginus Worm Lombard, and he was Stella's lawyer. Neil did grow up in fairly tough circumstances, but he also had something pretty unique. He had a pretty strong family life. He loved his mother. He loved his brothers and sisters. We know from talking to all the family members that they had a close relationship. He loved Christmas. And that's Suzanne Reber, an investigative journalist who co-authored the book Starlight Tour, The Last Lonely Night of Neil Stonechild. Neil did indeed get in trouble with the law. He had stints at two different juvenile facilities. If you're a Caucasian kid and you take a bike, you might get a slap on the wrist and maybe the cop would let you go or who knows. But if you're an indigenous kid like Neil, unfortunately that can get you into some of the traps, which is where he ended up in a lot more trouble and with some records. But Neil wasn't cruel or mean. He was witty, charming, and kind to the people around him. He was really outgoing. He was well-spoken. He wasn't shy. He loved being around people. He had a huge smile. I really loved his smile. Every time he smiled, I would, like, just whatever I was feeling, that made me feel better. I don't know what it was. On November 24th, 1990, Neil was on the run. Two weeks earlier, he had walked out of the community home he had been sentenced to live at. There was a warrant out for his arrest for being unlawfully at large. Stella, his mother, was sitting in her kitchen worrying about her son. But then he walked in and gave her a bear hug. She chided him, telling him that he should turn himself in. But it was a Saturday, and Neil wanted one last night of freedom to hang out with his friends. His mother made him promise to call Pat Prickard, who ran the community home that he had fled. And Neil stuck to his word. Neil told her that he had just been with his mother, that he had promised his mother that he would turn himself in on Sunday after the weekend, and, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll go ahead and deal with this. She spoke to him at length. I think she said they were on the phone for about a half an hour and things were good. She says, well, why don't you turn yourself in now? And he says, well, I've already been drinking, and he wanted his weekend. So Neil went out for one last hurrah before he had to face the music. He traded one of his brothers a pair of leather gloves for a bottle of vodka, and he met up with his friend Jason Roy. Neil and Jason had gotten to know each other in Kilburn Hall, the juvenile facility. But that night, they planned to get drunk, play cards with their friends, and wander around. And that's exactly what they did. After playing cards and polishing off the vodka, they made their way to a 7-Eleven. Neither of them had any money, but they wandered through the store, eating chips and candy right off the shelf. The clerk told them to get lost or he'd call the cops, and the two kids ran out. Both Neil and Jason were underdressed, and it was freezing outside. 
Jason wanted to go back to their friend's place, but Neil wanted to go see someone who lived in an apartment complex across the street. I think they're like three or four story apartment buildings, each containing likely 30 or 40 units. And uh, that's called Snowberry Downs. Jason and Neil got in a fight and they got separated. But it wasn't the last time that Jason Roy would see his friend that night. At around the same time, two Saskatoon police officers were on patrol. Brad Sanger had recently joined the force, and Larry Hartwig had been a cop for a few years. The 7-Eleven clerk had called the cops on Jason and Neil, and he had recognized Neil, so Hartwig and Sanger knew that they were looking for an indigenous teen named Neil Stonechild. Hartwig and Sanger got a notice from dispatch that Neil Stonechild was in Snowberry Downs causing a ruckus. At 11.51 p.m., they reported that they're on their way. Only a few minutes later, Jason Roy was making his way back to his friend's house. When all of a sudden, a Saskatoon police cruiser pulls up nearby. And what happens next is the part you really need to pay attention to. This whole story hinges on this moment. Jason says that he saw his friend Neil in the back of the cop car, his face pressed to the window. The window rolls down and Neil screams at Jason. He begs for help. He says that the cops are going to kill him. Neil's face was bloody. Jason was terrified. One of the cops rolls down his window and asks him if he knows the guy in the back. Jason lies. He says he doesn't. And then the cop asks his name. Jason lies again. He says his name is Tracy Lee Horse, which is his cousin's name. Unlike Jason, his cousin doesn't have a criminal record. The cops let Jason go and they drive off. By that point, Neil had stopped screaming for help. Neil Stonechild was lying in an empty field outside of Saskatoon. It was negative 28 degrees Celsius. The wind made it even colder. He got up and tried to walk, even though he only had one shoe on. As the hypothermia set in, he wouldn't have felt the chill anymore. The prairie sky was filled with cold, distant stars. He stumbled forward a few steps and fell down, and he never got up again. Four days after Jason Roy saw his friend Neil in the back of Hartwig and Sanger's police cruiser, a pair of laborers came across a body in an empty field. They reported what they found to the police. The spot where Neil's body was located was near the Hitachi factory, as it then was. It was a factory for manufacturing machinery. 
and his body was located within a, a hundred yards of that building north of 57th Street. Saskatoon police were sent to the scene, and right from the get-go, their investigation was a mess. We all have watched, you know, various crime dramas. We hear about securing the crime scene. We hear about chain of custody, maintain the evidence, all these things. None of that happened. There was all kinds of, like, trampling of the crime scene. The investigation was passed off to Keith Jarvis, a sergeant with the Morality Division. And my evaluation is that this individual went into a mind frame that said this kid was a troublemaker, and, you know, what's the point? And in fact, right from the get-go, there was also, I would call it kind of a racist attitude towards the scene. This idea, well, he drank too much, he walked out there by himself. A lot of innuendo about how he got out there in the first place, which was entirely inappropriate in my, my books, having looked at the evidence. So that seemed to permeate the early investigation right from the beginning. After he identified that the body belonged to Neil Stonechild, Jarvis went over to Stella Bignell's house to deliver the news. Here she is speaking about that moment many years later. I led him into the kitchen, sat at the table, and that's when he told me that Neil had died. The news was devastating. Stella had thought that at worst, Neil had made his way out of town. She couldn't understand how this could have happened. What exactly was he doing there in that empty field? In the following days, Sergeant Jarvis interviewed Neil's friends and family, including the last person to see him alive, Jason Roy. Jason had been hiding out after he saw Neil in the back of the cop car screaming for help. He assumed that Neil had been taken back to juvie and that the police would be looking for him too. When he saw in the news that Neil was dead, he knew he had to say something. Jason met up with Sergeant Jarvis and spoke to him. He told the investigator exactly what he had seen. The two of them spoke for nearly an hour, but Jarvis didn't record the conversation or take any notes. Instead, he got Jason to write and sign a short statement about what happened that night. Nowhere did it mention the fact that Jason had last seen Neil with the police. Jarvis talked to a handful of other people, and that was pretty much it. He didn't visit the area where Neil's body had been found or attend his autopsy. And as far as we know, he didn't speak to Hartwig or Senger, the two police officers who had been searching for Neil that day. And he came up with his own theory. He claimed that Neil was likely on his way to turn himself into a nearby adult prison when he died. It was simply preposterous. It could not be believed. And it wasn't believed. Remember, Neil only had one shoe on. His other shoe was never found. The sock that he was wearing was clearly not a sock that had been worn for a long period of time walking. It became, I, I would suggest, abundantly apparent that he was transported there uh, to the place where he ultimately struggled in the snow. You could see his footprints and then succumbed to the snow and the cold. Despite the fact that Hartwig and Sanger had been looking for Neil the night he disappeared, they never came forward with that information, even after Neil's body had been identified. Does that click? No. Does it click with Hartwig? Jesus, this is the guy that we were looking for three days ago. Shouldn't we go and tell somebody? No. Nothing. Crickets. It's kind of difficult to avoid the words cover-up. 
We know that the investigation done into the death of Neil Stonechild was incompetent at best, and it was a cover-up at the worst. Over 400 people attended Neil's funeral, including an Indigenous Saskatoon police officer who knew the Stonechild family, Ernie Loudet. At the funeral, Jake Stonechild, Neil's brother, approached Loudet and told him that his family just didn't believe the story that Neil could have walked out there on his own. Here's Loudet speaking to APTN. I, t- I recorded that information and I went to uh, the station, pulled a, a copy of the report and photocopied it, which was against policy back then. He spoke to Jarvis and tried to relay his suspicions. I was told, you know, for pretty, pretty uh, firm terms that, that it was not for me to investigate or to interfere with and I didn't have the experience or knowledge of the case that I should have had. In the aftermath of Neil's death, his family and friends struggled with their grief. They never gave up the belief that something wasn't right. About a year after he died, Stella Bignell told a Saskatoon Star Phoenix reporter that she felt that Neil's death was suspicious and that the investigation just wasn't enough. The story ran on the front page, but nothing else came of it. Jason Roy told his uncle about what he saw that night. His uncle is Donald Worm. That's how Worm first heard about the case. And Jason Roy had told me about this event some years before. And although I didn't pay a great deal of attention to it, it did stick in my mind. But Donald admits that he brushed Jason off. He just couldn't believe his nephew's story. There is a, there is a reaction internally when you think that something so horrible might have happened that I don't know what it is within human nature, at least within me, that makes you want to say, no, that's not true. No, that can't be happening. There must be some other explanation to, to this. In the time after Neil's death, Jeffrey Crow was still locked up in Kilburn Hall. He had been allowed to attend his best friend's funeral, but they brought him in under guard. Back in those days, I was a very angry person, and I had to get through those things. Like when I remember feeling like, man, they're going to get away with it. So up till this point, I was like, man, I really wanted to say something because I knew something was not right. Like the information I got was just not right. And then, you know, it was just, no, how, why? I just had all these questions and I couldn't get them answered. And I just like couldn't figure it out. Just confused, angry. Like, why? What's going on? Like, it was just a state of confusion. And that's what I painted on the gym wall. I painted what I felt, I painted what I thought, I painted what I was told, I painted everything that was going on. Neil had always encouraged Jeffrey to stick with his art, so in order to help him process everything that had happened, he got permission to paint a mural in Kilburn Hall. It took him three months to finish. The four panels show Jeffrey's difficult journey through grief and depression and addiction. The first panel, uh, him and I, The red represents the anger. The gray represents the constant hurt. And then the purple represents healing. So there always has to be healing. It's going to take a while. It's going to be hard. But these are the steps. So help me God, can I get through this? I just paint what I felt and thought. Neil's family and friends would continue to be haunted by all of the unanswered questions surrounding his death. 
but in the year 2000, a decade after Neil had been found dead, a series of events would take place that would bring all of this out into the open. Two more indigenous people would be found frozen to death, but one man would make it back from a starlight tour alive. Donald Worm is a respected lawyer in Saskatchewan, but he's always known that his life could have turned out very differently. He often jokes, he's like, well, there's only two ways you can go. He, you know, he became a lawyer. He could have, he said, could have just as easily ended up in a situation of crime. I mean, his upbringing was also not that easy. For the earliest part of his life, he grew up in Saskatoon with his mother. But in January of 1964, when he was only four years old, his mother was murdered by his stepfather. Worm saw it happen, and he was the main witness in the murder trial. Following some years in the, in the uh, child welfare system, I was eventually rescued by my grandfather and uh, brought home, and I was raised in Kwakatoos First Nation. Despite some difficult years, Worm was able to get into law school and was called to the bar in 1986. After working briefly with the Department of Justice and doing some prosecutorial work, he decided his skills could be put to better use. However, I thought that I might join the other side of the bar and wear the white hat and be the good guy, as I thought. And uh, indeed, I did. By 2000, he was a respected criminal defense lawyer. And one day in January, a man named Daryl Knight walked into his office. He told me his, uh, his story. And it was as horrific as it was troubling, as it was incredible. He was arrested on uh, 20th Street in Saskatoon. There were a few relatively rough bars down there, and apparently he had been attending some of those, and clearly he'd been drinking, as were others in the area. Police were doing patrols, and they were stopping people. And at some point in time, they encountered Daryl Knight, and uh, he was not his usual cordial self, if I might put it that way. He exchanged some words with the officers. There was some profanities exchanged, not one way, incidentally. He was subsequently arrested by officers Hatchin and Munson. They then put him in the vehicle, and as they drove, he was conversing with them from the back seat of the police vehicle. And he told me, as he told others, that he noticed that they were not going toward the police station, that in fact they were going away from the police station, that they were indeed heading out of town. And eventually they drove past the Queen Elizabeth power station, which is located on the west end of Saskatoon along the, the Saskatchewan River. Daryl Knight told Donald Worm that the two police officers yelled at him to, quote, get out, you fucking Indian. When he told them that he would freeze to death, they said, quote, that's your fucking problem. They kicked him out and left him there. Daryl Knight uh, managed to walk to the power station. He began to bang on the, on the doors, and uh, eventually somebody came and answered and said to him, what the hell are you doing out there? And he told him, he says, the cops dropped me off out here. You know, thanks for saving me. So Daryl managed to save his life with the assistance of the caretaker at the Queen Elizabeth Power Station and made his way home. He got a cab, took a cab home. 
Donald Worm had heard of people being dropped off outside of town, but nothing like this. Not on a freezing winter night. Daryl had only been wearing a jean jacket, a t-shirt, and pants. He almost certainly would have died if someone hadn't been at the power station to let him in. At first, Daryl didn't want to report the incident to the police. Who are you going to tell? If the police are doing it, who do you go to? He did tell his family, and a few days later, his uncle was giving him a ride when they got pulled over by a Saskatoon police officer. The cop had noticed that a child in the back of the car wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And as he was giving them a ticket, Daryl and his cousin turned on the radio. The news was reporting that a 30-year-old indigenous man had been found frozen to death just outside the Queen Elizabeth Power Station, the exact same place where the cops had given Daryl his starlight tour. His name was Lawrence Wegner. Right then, Daryl's uncle insisted that they tell the police officer what had happened, but Daryl was terrified. Here he is speaking in Tasha Hubbard's documentary, Two Worlds Collide. Who's going to believe me? I don't think he'd believe me, you know that? Daryl's uncle told the cop. Here's that officer, Bruce Eholt, speaking in the same documentary. And uh, in talking with them, they relayed the information that they, uh, they felt that it was related to the same type of incident that had happened to Daryl. Uh, There's a number of things that went through my mind, and I guess the, one of the first ones was, uh, this can't really be happening. Eholt asked Daryl to give him some time to look into it. And the reason I asked for that time was so that I could begin an investigation, uh, relay the information to uh, Chief Dave Scott, who was my chief at the time, and... Uh, it gave us time to find out exactly what was going on. Ehold told Daryl he'd come meet him at his house in a day. Next day, that cop that pulled us over, he pulls up. What does he want? I was thinking. And he goes, Daryl, Daryl, come here. Hard. I was scared to go over there. And I go, what do you want, copper? Because remember you're telling me nobody will believe you? And I go, yeah, I believe you, he said. There were actually two indigenous men found frozen to death that week, Rodney Nastus and Lawrence Wegner, and Daryl Knight had just barely escaped becoming the third. The day after Daryl Knight walked into Donald Worm's office, the Saskatoon Star Phoenix ran a front-page story. Two officers had been suspended in connection with Daryl Knight's accusations, and homicide investigations were opened into the deaths of Rodney Nastus and Lawrence Wagner. Good evening. Harsh allegations against two Saskatoon police officers. They're accused of mistreating a native man. And at the same time, an investigation is being launched into the mysterious deaths of two other Aboriginal men. Pia Chattopadhyay reports. And we have nothing that would indicate that they are related, the person being dropped off or the two people that were found. The investigations were soon passed off to the RCMP. Donald Worm began representing Lawrence Wegner's family. And then, on February 18th, just three days after he'd met Daryl, he got a message. It was from his nephew, Jason Roy. 
Just as he had years before, Jason told his uncle what he saw in 1990, the night his friend Neil Stonechild had disappeared, that he was in the back of a police car, that his face was bloody, and he was screaming for help. The first time Jason had told him that story, Donald hadn't believed him. But he did now. This was becoming far bigger than he could have imagined. At around the same time, reporters at the Saskatoon Star Phoenix continued to report on the freezing deaths. One of them, Les Perot, began to dig through the paper's archives for similar cases. And he found one, a 17-year-old boy named Neil Stonechild. When Perot called up Neil's mother, Stella Bignell, she told him that she had been waiting for that call for 10 years. Quote, Neil was just a boy. He never had a chance to grow up. Maybe now that you're writing this, they'll take another look at what happened to Neil. The Star Phoenix ran the article on the front page, and much of the public was stunned. Within a month, the Starlight Tours had gone from rumor to reality. At least two men were dead. Another man said he'd survived. And now, a boy could be added to the list of victims there was a massive public outcry. We had citizens marching on the streets. We had our indigenous and non-indigenous uh, brothers and sisters pulling together, demanding that something must be done, that a closer examination must be done. And this was the outrage of not just now understanding that a 17-year-old boy had, had died in these horrendous circumstances a decade ago, but within the last several months... We have these Indigenous men being found in these very, shall we say, curious circumstances. The two officers who kidnapped Daryl Knight, Dan Hatchin and Ken Munson, were arrested and charged. During the trial, they claimed, improbably, that Daryl Knight had asked them to drop him off in the middle of nowhere. But they were found guilty of unlawful confinement and sentenced to eight months in prison but no charges were laid in the deaths of Lawrence Wegner and Rodney Nastus. While inquests were held, they also didn't come to any conclusions. And we were involved in, in each of those uh, cases. Uh, each of them, however, did not arrive at any finding. The story was now international news. Newspapers around the world were writing about the small Canadian city where Indigenous people were being found frozen to death in suspicious circumstances. And even while the pressure was mounting on the police and the government, the situation was becoming dangerous for those speaking up. Daryl Knight was stabbed at a bar. He doesn't know who did it or why. And Daryl and Donald Worm both got multiple death threats. They had to wear bulletproof vests to the trial of Hatchin and Munson. Jason Roy also felt that his family was being threatened. Donald remembers one day when he got a call from Jason. Jason's partner, Vanessa Kistas, had been arrested at a local store. The police claimed that she was dealing drugs. It was either a case of misidentity or a case of an attempt to intimidate her and Jason. And clearly it worked because subsequent to that, uh, we found them a location out of the city to stay for a number of months to be out of the, the spotlight that I thought that they were certainly under. The RCMP continued to investigate Neil Stonechild's death, but in 2002, the Department of Justice decided not to file charges in the case. Demands for a public inquiry grew louder, 
until finally, in February 2003, the Saskatchewan government announced that they would hold one. 13 years after he was found dead in a freezing field outside of Saskatoon, a proper investigation into Neil Stonechild's death would finally be undertaken. Jeffrey Crow left Saskatoon seven years after Neil died. And living in Saskatoon was eating me alive. So that's the reason why I left Saskatoon in 1997. I didn't want nothing to do with this city. It's still the same. Nothing's changed. But when he heard about the inquiry, he thought that maybe this was it. Maybe there would finally be some justice for his friend. I got a telephone call from Jason Roy. And he says, Jeff, he says, you might want to put on the channel right now. So I did. He said, I'll call you right back. And then that's when they announced it. And I'll never forget it. I was just so filled with hope. Like, okay, maybe they're not going to get away with this. Donald Worm was more cautious. He was going to be representing Stella Bignell at the inquiry, which meant that he would have the opportunity to question all the witnesses. But he had seen what happened during all of those inquests, and he knew that justice never came easily for Indigenous people in Canada. Here's Suzanne Reber again. There was always a sort of almost a, a guard that what if this whole thing falls apart? What if we don't get the evidence in? What if the judge essentially does a whitewash? The Saskatchewan government had chosen David Wright, a respected judge, to lead the process. But because so many years had passed, much of the evidence had been destroyed or lost, including the clothes that Neil Stonechild had been wearing when he died. The Saskatoon police had thrown them out a few years after his death. Investigators also couldn't track down the report that Sergeant Jarvis had written, though eventually Ernie Loudett, the Indigenous cop who Neil's family had confided in, remembered that he had photocopied it back in 1990. Tensions were high when the inquiry finally began on September 8, 2003. Stella Bignell was the first witness called up. For more than a decade, she had fought for her son, going to the press and going to the police, and she was the main reason this inquiry was taking place. This is a mother's love, you know, and as a, as a man who grew up without a mother, I mean, I could only imagine what that must be like. And I can see that it is a love that is undying that it is undiminished in any way, shape, or form. And she never gave up. And that, to me, was just the most uplifting aspect of this entire thing. And that's why I wanted so desperately to find and help her get the answers that she cried out for for a decade. And where she was rebuffed at every instance by people in authority, deliberately misleading her. I thought that that was so shameful. So her actions were, were incredible. They were, they were monumental. You know, seeing Stella and her family there, listening to Stella's testimony and how much respect there was in the room for her. It was quiet. You could have heard a pin drop. I know that's a cliche, but that's exactly how it was. There was just a lot of respect in the room that you could sense for this woman. And that's really how I feel about her too. She's such a straight, honest broker that, you know, she's just motivated by trying to find out what happened to her boy. 
that when she got on the stand and she had to counter what the media was already saying, the media was reporting this, that this man had frozen to death 10 years ago, that this man had been in trouble with the law, that this man had been drinking. None of those things matter. And the fact of the matter is, is he wasn't a man. And as she said, I will remember this till the day I die, that he was not a man. He was not given that chance. It still impacts me. And I don't know if it's if it's the, uh, the sadness of it or the anger, but uh, that was an extremely touching moment. Jason Roy was one of the next people to testify. He was the only person who could place Neil Stonechild in the back of the police car. Jason had been in trouble with the law and had some issues with addiction over the years. He was the kind of witness that the media often goes after. I've known him since, uh, since he was an infant. My late sister had care and custody of Jason as an infant, and he was a beautiful baby. He was an absolute beautiful baby. He was a happy baby. He was, you know, just joyful. And obviously he had some difficulties in his life things that he's never shied away from, and he was completely uh, candid about the troubles that he's had, both with alcohol and with the system. Notwithstanding Jason's difficulties, he's always been an upright person. In the years after Neil's death, Jason was racked with guilt. He thought that maybe there could have been some way he could have helped, but he never wavered about what he saw that night. All rise. Jason Edward Roy, you swear the evidence you shall give to this hearing shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help God. Yes, I did. My police car pulled in front of me, and Neil was in the back. From the moment uh, he saw me, he was was very irate. He He was freaking out. He was saying, Jay, help me. Help me. These guys are going to kill me. Did you observe his condition? He had fresh blood on his face. Across his nose. I couldn't see all that well. But he had his face to the window. And he was yelling at me, asking me to help, asking me to help him. The police lawyers at the inquiry tried to use Jason's difficult life as a means to discredit him, to say that he was lying. But there was one piece of evidence that proved he had spoken to Hartwick and Sanger that night. Jason told the court the fake name that he had given the cops the night of Neil's death, Tracy Lee Horse. The police had typed it into their system, so there was a record of it being searched and Donald Worm had made sure that Jason never revealed that name to the public before. Because nobody would have known that. That was the one loose thread. They can cover up everything else. You can create a different narrative. You can make a different scenario for virtually everything else, except for that one critical piece. And had Jason told everybody at the beginning, I have no doubt whatsoever, that there would have been a great opportunity in order for an explanation to be devised. One of the most difficult moments of the inquiry was when they showed photos of what Neil's face looked like after he died. 
Stella Bignell asked the court not to impose a publication ban so that everyone could see what the police had done to her son. To just hear the kind of gasp in the room when people would actually see it, Don was presenting evidence that you could see the evidence of Neil being beaten across the bridge of his nose by the handcuffs. And the defense was disputing this. And I think anybody who saw those pictures, I mean, it was such a clear image across the bridge of the nose. And of course, the two police officers that Jason Roy saw that night, Brad Sanger and Larry Hartwig, also testified. Officers uh, Hartwig and Sanger, of course, those were, you know, they're, they're real pieces of work. They gave misleading responses or outright denials to things that should have been at the forefront of their memory. Officer Singer, if there was someone less blameworthy, I would, I would suggest that it was him. He was a rookie at the time. I, I could tell that he was small dog almost immediately. And uh, in my cross-examination of him, there was only one thing to do, and that was to impeach his credibility because he was guilty of bad policing. In a lie detector test that Brad Sanger had taken, he admitted to once changing the numbers on a breathalyzer so that he didn't have to arrest someone. And that goes to the heart, to the very heart of, of policing. So when you look at bad policing in the dictionary, that's the picture you see. Hartwig was more combative on the stand. If you are into reading body language and other types of things, you often see where people that have guilt to hide they begin to do all sorts of things to distract one's attention. They began ferociously, for example, talking about, oh, well, this could somehow happen in order to create a diversion over in this direction. And that's precisely what he was doing at the time. Did you, sir, have Neil Stonechild in your custody on November 24th or 25th of 1990? No, I did not. Is it possible, sir, that you mistakenly had him in your custody in the sense that perhaps he was in your custody, gave you a false name, and you didn't realize it was Neil Stonechild. Do you think that's possible? No, I do not believe that's possible. During the RCMP investigation, Hartwig, totally unprompted, told RCMP Staff Sergeant Lyons that he knew Neil Stonechild. Donald Worm questioned Hartwig about why he did that. You were talking to the RCM police about the death of people, right? Human beings. Correct. Frozen to death, Correct. right? Inexplicably. Correct. And there was some suggestion at that point in time, even in the media, uh, that there was some kind of involvement by the Saskatoon Police Service. Correct. You were quite aware of that? Yes, I was. So you didn't try for a moment to downplay the seriousness of this. You knew going into your discussions with Staff Sergeant Lyons, that this is a serious situation. Absolutely. And so you turn the conversation to the death of Neil Stonechild, right? I turn the conversation to Neil Stonechild. Sergeant Lyons turned the conversation to the death of Neil Stonechild. Now, am I missing something here? Isn't that the same <clears throat> thing? So. Is that the same thing? No, it's not. All right. Justice David Wright interjects here. Why would you even raise the name of Neil Stonechild? Isn't that what you're asking, Mr. Wright? I was trying to, trying to get what to that. What earthly reason would there be for you to mention the name 
uh, Neil Stonechild in this context. Because I knew the RCMP were investigating the death of Neil Stonechild, they asked me about people I did not know about. The only person that I knew was Neil Stonechild. In total, the inquiry lasted nine months. They called 63 witnesses, and a transcript of the evidence ran over 8,000 pages. Justice David Wright was set to release the findings in October 2004. The day before the announcement, Donald Worm, Stella Bignell, and some of the other lawyers went and had a meeting with Saskatchewan's Minister of Justice. Donald didn't know what to expect. He'd seen inquest after inquest come to nothing. But Justice David Wright's report was something completely different. I was surprised by the findings. In fact, I was more than surprised. I was shocked that the findings were, were so clear. I thought that there would be obfuscation. I thought that there would be excuses. I thought that there would be the diet that Indigenous people are given when we encounter injustice and we are told that, no, it is not injustice. It's simply this or that or the other thing. David Wright had found that Neil Stonechild was in the back of Hartwig and Sanger's police cruiser the night he died. He found that Jason Roy had been telling the truth about what he saw. He found that Neil had been beaten with handcuffs, that Hartwig and Sanger lied on the stand, and that the Saskatoon police had ignored the evidence for 14 years. Stella, her husband Norman, and the whole legal team were overwhelmed. There were tears, not just, not just by Stella. Her grace again and dignity was so impressive. It just gave such strength to everybody in the room, even, even to the minister who was apologizing to her. We walked out of that, that meeting with the minister in a bit of a daze, I must say, in a bit of a daze. And I do remember that we had a dinner that evening just to talk about to talk about this and to talk about what our next steps would be and what we might do subsequently, what the options might be, and whether this provides the answers to Stella that, that she wanted. And indeed, she said that she was happy and that she was, she was very happy, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and we cried. The next day, Justice Minister Frank Quinnell publicly apologized to Stella and the rest of Neil's family. I am sorry that she and her family had to wait 14 years for the investigation they deserved from the outset. As parents, our worst nightmare is that our children will be hurt or worse, taken from us. Larry Hartwig and Brad Sanger were fired from the Saskatoon police. I have formed the opinion that constables Hartwig and Singer are each unsuitable for police service by reason of their conduct, and that in the circumstances of that conduct, no remedial action short of dismissal is reasonable. I have therefore this afternoon ordered the dismissal of both Constable Hartwig and Constable Singer from the Saskatoon Police Service effective today. But neither of the cops were ever charged in connection with Neil's death. You know, it's shocking, actually. Knowing what we know and the evidence that did exist even at that point, I'm still shocked that they didn't lay those charges. Hartwig and Sanger have maintained their innocence and have appealed the Stonechild Inquiry report numerous times. But none of those attempts were successful. The findings still stand today. For Donald Worm, 
The Stonechild inquiry was proof that when indigenous people fight for what's right, they can win. Speaking personally, I think it matters because it is an example that uh, injustice can be stood against. As indigenous people, we've had a constant diet of injustice for decades, millennia. And what this case says is that we can stand up against that and we can do something. And collectively, we are able to achieve our own dignity and to stand up for our own integrity. And I want our young people to know that. I want our kids to know that so that they never lose hope or lose faith. But for the people who loved him, the pain of losing Neil is still present. Jeffrey Crow feels it the worst every November, around the anniversary of Neil's death. Over the years, he's spoken publicly many times about his friendship with Neil, but he doesn't know if he can do it anymore. So that's why I say this may be my last interview. He still feels that Neil is with him. He holds on dearly to everything they had in their brief time together. He wonders what kind of a man Neil would have turned into if he had been given a chance. I know that he would be an awesome father, like the best father ever. And I know that him and I would have had this incredible, uh, his kids and my kids, friendship. Uncle Jeff and Uncle Neil, I just know that. Jeffrey today is still an artist. 30 years later, he still signs every painting with a symbol inspired by Neil. I live with this still very much alive in me the story i don't know what the whole story is i only know what i went through i only know what the pain that i have come to live with and the emptiness and the void but even now jeffrey is sometimes consumed with grief with the fact that he couldn't help his best friend and i felt so guilty because like if me and Neil were together that night, I would have been with him. I wouldn't have left him. And I felt guilty. I still feel guilty. Sometimes it felt like they took the wrong guy. They should have left him and took me. Don't feel like that. But of course, Jeffrey had nothing to do with his friend's death. The actual people responsible have never owned up to what they did or expressed remorse. I don't know exactly how what justice looks like, but I know what the family was giving was not justice. He was a special guy, you know, he was a special person. And uh, he left a gaping wound in a lot of people people that he hadn't even met. So that's the power of Neil Stonechild, my bro. That's how much I know and love him. You know, that's that's how much our friendship was. It was unbelievable. I got I got to experience that and I was I'm grateful. So those kind of things are very important to uh, talk about. Because we live in a world where everybody's tearing each other down, saying ugly things to one another everywhere so more now than ever do i take his guidance and his leadership and the spirit of deal to guide me through 
for the rest of the years. So yeah, I'm a, in my late 40s and I'm still crying about it, you know? So it's made a big impact on my life. So that's why I, I may sound, you know, a little raspy in the voice, but hey, I'll take that any day for my friend. The Starlight Tours are one of the most grotesque examples we have of police violence in this country. What makes this such a heinous crime, from my perspective, is that it's sort of death by Canada. There's no weapon, there's no witness, and really it's the cold that will kill a person. There's no one there, there's nobody to see you, there's nobody to yell to, you're far outside the town. Saskatoon isn't the only Canadian city where Indigenous people have been taken on starlight tours. In just the last few years, there have been allegations against different police forces across the country, including in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and in Val d'Or, Quebec. And they represent just a fraction of the injustices that police forces have meted out to Indigenous peoples in Canada. We still see it. We see it today. We see it in the, in the deaths of Rodney Levi in New Brunswick. We see it in the, in the beating of the chief in Northern Alberta for an expired license plate. We see it in the nastiness of the RCMP with respect to individuals in Inuvik. And all of this is captured in real time on video and broadcast. There's no denying that that is still prevalent in this country and systemic racism is a major aspect of that. And systemic racism exists at every level of society. That's your episode of Commons for the week. If you want to support us, click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode relied on reporting done by Suzanne Reber, Robert Renault, Tasha Hubbard, Terry Craig, Les Perot, Dan Zakreski, Caitlin Vandewoostein, Larissa Burnoff, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Dami Lola Oname and Rosalind Kafour. Our managing editor is Andreas Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 